0: Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for bio and health at A16Z. In today's episode, we talked to Joshua March, the co-founder and CEO of Sci-Fi Foods, a company that's using biology to develop and improve cultivated meat. Joining us in conversation is Vijay Pandey, general partner at A16Z Bio and Health and a board member at SciFi. Together, we talked about the engineering and biology challenges of cultivated meat, where cultivated meat is headed, and the regulatory process for getting cultivated meat approved by the FDA and USDA to end up on consumers' plates. It actually involves slaughterhouse inspectors in the lab. Let's get started. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Something I found interesting when I was doing the research for this episode is that the idea for sci-fi actually came to you from reading a sci-fi novel. So I would love to start there. Maybe you could tell us what the novel was, but also how it inspired you and how that led ultimately to the creation of Sci-Fi Foods.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm a huge science fiction fan, and I I was reading Player of Games by Ian M. Banks, and... Ian Banks writes about this kind of futuristic culture civilization, this kind of post-singularity civilization, which has all of these advanced technologies. And in multiple of these books, uh, he mentions the fact that they are cultivating meat from cells in tanks instead of growing it from animals. And it was never the core focus of any of the books, but he kind of references it in multiple ways. And as soon as I read it, and it was about 15 years ago at this point when I first read that book, it just immediately struck me. That, that kind of had to be the future that we built. And yeah, you know, I, I I eat meat, actually love eating burgers and pretty carnivorous, but very aware of the environmental challenges caused by meat and, and especially beef, which is really the worst the worst culprit. And it just seemed clear to me that with a growing population and a population that's getting wealthier and eating more and more meat, we can't just keep doing what we're doing, which is basically cutting down the rainforest and yeah, throwing billions more animals into the factory farming machine.
2: One of the fun things about uh, sci-fi is inspiration is that, like, you think about other areas of tech, have had so many sci-fi, uh, science fiction inspiration. You know, people associate like the satellite with Arthur C. Clarke. Or uh, I remember, yeah. uh, you know, my my uh, middle daughter complaining about the flip phone I gave her, asking if the flip phone is good enough for Captain Kirk, it should be good enough for her. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's so many things are out there, and but yet I I think it hasn't come to these everyday things as foods, then how do you go from like reading that book 15 years ago
1: to being CEO of Sci-Fi Foods? Yeah, and it was certainly a long journey. You know, at the time that I read that book, I already had a, a startup that I was working on that was in the kind of social media and, and software space. And I've kind of had this secret plan of, okay, I'll yeah, do this company, make a lot of money here, and then go and invent, invent cultivated meat technology. Uh,
2: but so you actually you had that arc in mind? Even yeah. with the first company, okay, actually, yeah. I didn't know
1: that. That's interesting. yeah, that was my that was yeah. my like secret plan. as like a twenty three year old, but yeah. um, yeah, as you know, companies can take a, a long time. It can be a long journey, yeah. and you know that original company. I ended up we ended up selling it, but had spun out another company that raised venture capital before that happened, and then it was a kind of eight year plus journey uh, of running that that second company before it really made sense for me uh, to be able to to step back and, and think about doing something completely different. And by that time, the cultivated meat industry had started to develop. Uh, and it started to come across scientists and entrepreneurs who were working on trying to make cultivated meat a reality. 2016 was when I first started to come across other scientists working on it. Yeah, I just started learning as much as I could about it and did some investing and some advising into some of those startups and um, just started spending as much time learning about the science and Uh, and the technology challenges. It was kind of over the course of a number of years of doing that, that I started to realize that there were these really big challenges that were potentially going to prevent cultivated meat from really coming onto the market and and having a big impact on the world. And I started to feel a little disenchanted with what I was kind of hearing from other companies in the space about how they were going to tackle some of these huge cost and scale challenges. And it was really that experience that made me feel like Okay, I think I need to go and do this myself if we're going to have a shot at really really transforming how the, how the meat industry is is performing. So you know how do how do you go from being a tech entrepreneur to being cultivated meat CEO? Yeah, and it was certainly gradual. The first thing really was just to learn as much as possible. I actually picked up the molecular biology of the cell, just like a thousand page university textbook and just read it uh, cover to cover uh, yep. which was, took it took a while. Uh, that was part of it and just spending as much time with scientists in the space and learning as much as I possibly could. And the first kind of founding insight that I had was really around this big challenge of, of structure uh, in cultivated meat that you know, while it was clear to me that we have the technology to grow animal cells, right? people have been doing that in bioreactors and biopharma for decades, although it's very expensive, but fundamentally we know how. But when it comes to taking those cells and turning them into 3D structured muscle tissue and fat tissue, I realized that the science on that is really much more nascent. And while people do kind of small scale demonstrations in the lab, it's incredibly complex and no one really knows how to to manufacture that. Certainly no one really knows how to do it, honestly, to create organs that could be reimplanted into a human and that people would pay almost any amount to, let alone uh, do that for a local food product.
2: It's funny you mentioned that because around the same time, like uh, or maybe even a little earlier, like 2012, I remember chatting with my lab at Stanford. You know, I was at Stanford before I came to A16Z. And, you know, we would talk about crazy things. One of the crazy things we were talking about is just, uh growing food and cultivating food in a lab. And I think the image we had was like, there was this plant that would grow like a filet mignon or something like that. Yeah. That would just sort of yeah. pop out of it. <laughs> but like, I think we had this idea of plant and idea of filet mignon, but like, uh, then a miracle happens, kind of in between. Yeah, and so it sounds like you you kind of were not satisfied with uh, then a miracle happens.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and I was spending time with some friends who had been involved in like the biofuels industry and had seen some of the challenges there, where hundreds of millions of dollars, being, or billions of dollars, were kind of invested and people couldn't quite get the economics to work. And you know, when I asked people why, it was always that. Oh, they they needed these innovations in, you know, in the upstream process and to design. They were also needed innovations in cell line development and they were trying to make innovations in downstream processing. And it was like there were too many miracles that they needed. And it feels like when it comes to science, you know, one miracle is like is, is a big thing to solve. And if yeah. you have multiple miracles that all need to be solved to go right yeah. for startup to work, it's like it's very unlikely it's gonna happen.
2: Yeah. I, 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 I a great just general principle because you know obviously it becomes less and less probable that the startup is going to exist if you have to do this and this and this so yeah. i mean that begs the question like what was the miracle that you sort of found you, you you only needed one what was the one
1: yeah so we kind of removed the need for the structure miracle which we can talk more on by doing blended products so yeah our core our core strategy is to use cultivated cells essentially as a flavoring ingredient uh, into plant-based meat so using the fats the proteins that come from those cells to make make those, those meat alternative products actually taste like meat. That means we can just add the cells. We don't need to do the structure. But I mentioned that, you know, the cost of animal cell culture is still really expensive and, you know, fundamentally when you get down to it, that's caused by the behavior of animal cells, right? And animal cells have all of these different phenotypes that have nothing to do with, with flavor, but do make them really complex and expensive to grow. You know, generally they generally adherent, so they wanted to grow attached to a surface. Oh, sorry,
2: it's like basically these are muscles from an animal. It was not intended for us to eat them as the primary sort of evolutionary selection process, right? So you almost have to recreate exactly. the, the parts that are not in the animal because you don't have the animal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and fundamentally, we don't want to try and recreate a cow, right? We want we want the cells to be happy growing in a big steel tank in, in super cheap cell culture media. And so kind of our key insight was that you know, the way to solve these problems isn't by trying to create fancy new bioreactors or to you know figure out super low-cost ways of making growth factors. But if we can just engineer the cells and shift the cell phenotype so that they can be immortal, they grow in suspension, they'll grow in su- super cheap cell culture media, you can get them to grow to high cell densities in, in big bioreactors. That's the miracle that if you can just shift the cell line so that uh, it has those characteristics and the KPIs which allow you to manufacture it at scale and low cost yeah. in existing hardware. Then that suddenly becomes something that that is is viable both technically and commercially if you do the techno-economic analysis. Yeah. Well. So you know, one of the things I think that's
2: intriguing about the way you work is that you know I think there's sort of three areas of biology as we move forward. There's like old-school biology, is like discovery. Like you discover something and coolness yeah. does this. And then there's design, where like, hey, I can build something new. And then there's iterative improvement where like, not only can I design something, but I can actually improve it 10% like iteration after iteration. And if your iterations are frequent enough, like once a week or something like that, in a year, you could have 50 iterations. And maybe if they are 10% better iteration after iteration, now you're exponentially off to the races. And I think when people talk about designing biology, often they talk about just that middle one where like they've done something, but they don't talk about the iterative improvement loop. And. You know, what I think people love about tech is like you can compile things and improve the code and 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 have that iteration loop. I'm curious, like how you got to the place where you you knew what you needed to do
1: and what you had to get to, but like how did you go from like what was naturally there to like what you have now? Yeah, and we're really big believers in taking that engineering approach, which kind of the symbio platform really enables in order yeah. to to shift the phenotype of cells, and you know they're fundamentally. Biology is super complex, right? It's And this is one of the, both complex and has a lot of unknowns. And this is one of the big differences with, with kind of software. Yeah, when you're trying to shift the behavior of a cell, even if you really understand a particular pathway and you know all the proteins involved in that pathway, you don't necessarily know that if you you know, mess with some of that, one of those proteins, that's not going to impact other yeah. things in the cell. And, and, it's more like you're trying to rewrite someone else's code and you don't have all the code. Exactly. And so, one of the key insights of the kind of symbio approach is like, well, yeah, hey, you can have a big team of super smart MIT PhDs, and we do. But even with that, you still don't know that if we make these three genetic changes, it will have this exact impact, right? You can kind of guess the, the kind of general area. And so, ultimately, the way to have that that impact is you have to experiment, and you have to have a pretty large kind of combinatorial approach uh, of like figuring out what what are the different genetic changes that actually have the impact on the phenotype that you want. And so for us, that means we've we've you know invested into automation infrastructure, things like liquid handling robots and other things that allow us to just increase the throughput of our team so that a relatively small team can make a really large number of, of, of cell lines every single month and experiment yep. with a large number of tiny genetic changes. How how do you decide what moves on from iteration to iteration? Yeah, one of the the big things for us was to kind of start with the end in mind and do a detailed technoeconomic analysis and understand what needs to be true for us to have an affordable product at scale and a lot of that comes down to some core kpis around cell line performance right so things like the cell density uh things like the growth rate things like the cost of media and yeah we kind of worked out from there a kind of roadmap uh, of cell behavior that we need to need to achieve one of the first things obviously was to multiply cell lines Yep. The next huge kind of zero to one for us was about achieving suspension cell culture. So cells that grow in uh, you know single cell suspension. And that was a a big lift. It was something that actually no one else had managed to achieve with with beef cell lines, edible beef cell lines before. Uh people had tried using evolutionary approaches and, and failed. Um, and so it was a big, big task. But for, for our platform and, and we achieved that, it took us about 12 months. Yeah. And now there's a number of different areas that we're that we're working on, some of them are around uh, like cell density, which often is about kind of shifting the metabolism of the cell to minimize buildup of toxic metabolites, basically. Some of it, it's around growth rates. One of the big cost drivers is the cost of the cell culture media. And that's kind of what, one of the big areas for us around just kind of removing all these expensive components from the media.
2: You talked about the uh, techno-economic analysis is guiding this. How do you think about taste? Because I know you taste that matters a lot to you. <laughs> How do you engineer in low cost and all these other biological things but also get to something that you know uh, that gets to where you
1: want taste wise yeah taste is obviously the ultimate goal right that's why we're why we're doing what we're doing we basically found one of the cell types that have the best impact on taste and found that okay like this cell type with nothing else with no further optimization is really beneficial and now we've kind of locked that in and we're focusing on on price and scale and we actually regularly do taste tests of like, okay, if we've engineered the cell line more, we should taste, taste it and make sure it doesn't, you know, it still tastes the same yeah. or it doesn't taste any worse. Yeah. It's biomolecular gastronomy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the Suprof so product, you know, the taste is like at a, at a good level right now. In future, uh, we think there's a lot more that we can do. And so, you know, one of the biggest impacts on flavor for, for me is the specific fatty acid profile. You know, there's a lot of, you know, if you change a single carbon atom in a fatty acid, you know, that shifts its aroma and shifts its melting point and the way it kind of operates uh, as, as, a, as a flavor molecule. Optimizing that fatty acid profile, and uh, we think it's gonna be really important to keep improving the flavor over time. And eventually we'd like to get to the point where, from an economics and engineering perspective, we are able to you know, completely remove any kind of fats, plant-based fats or oils from our products and just use uh, fats that are, that are from our cultivated cells.
2: The beauty of engineering processes is you have this iterative improvement. But and principle, another aspect is that
1: you can now apply this to other areas. I mean, I think uh, where would you go after burgers? It, it is an iterative cycle, and you know, beef is the kind of initial focus. Once we have that beef cell line and the process kind of locked in and gone through regulatory, then from a food science perspective, we can use that in lots of different products where they can be used for burgers, sausages, meatballs, all, all kinds of things. But the core platform that we've developed and a lot of the knowledge and IP we're building up around exactly you know which genetic targets, yeah, particular shifts in cell behavior, we do expect to be pretty well conserved between different species, certainly mammalian species, but think probably eukaryotes pretty broadly. Um and so we, you know, we do anticipate moving into additional species over time. Pork probably makes a lot of sense as a kind of next step. Um, yeah. but it really could be anything after that, whether that's chicken or even fish. I uh, hear bacon cheeseburgers are popular. You know, that yeah. could be quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if, yeah. I, the dream is to eventually is to like get all the way where we have steak and uh, wow. and bacon and products like that. But we think there's some big big steps forward that need to happen before that can be possible. Well, so you mentioned regulatory, like what does that look like? So the FDA and the USDA came out a couple of years ago with a kind of joint regulatory framework for cultivating meat. And they essentially agreed that the FDA would regulate the development of the cell lines and the kind of upstream process. And then at the point of harvest, when you're basically taking the cells out of your final production bioreactors, they're no longer viable, then it would hand over to the USDA, who would es- essentially regulate and inspect it as if you were a slaughterhouse. And so in all in terms of all the food safety and how you're managing the materials and things like that, because essentially it is meat at that point. Yeah, But it, it does have a kind of funny thing that it means the USDA are going to have these Slaughterhouse inspectors They're literally got to yeah finish their finish their day in slaughterhouse sort of and like then come come to the Bay Area and start inspecting these like pilot facilities uh, yeah. for cultivated meat companies. With the FDA, which is a kind of bigger hurdle to start, uh, it's a consultation process uh, for now, right? So they don't have a clear set of like rules and regulations of exactly what you have to do. Instead, we go and present to them on what we're doing and you know the, the different. Uh, steps we're taking to minimize adventitious agents and contamination and various things like that. And we'll talk about the cell lines and the changes we've made and uh, how we're showing that. And they then ask questions and say, okay, well, we need to see this data or this data, or you need to go do this study or this genomic analysis, whatever it is. And eventually that gets to the point where they basically say, okay, you've given us, this is everything we need. And they'll give us like an official letter that says you answered every question. And then we can submit the full dossier. And at that point, you know, this isn't a drug. You know, it's a food. And ultimately, exactly. So the risk at that point should be pretty low. They still have to go through a kind of bureaucratic process. So it could still be 4-9 months after you've submitted that final dossier before they give you a letter of approval. You know, it's a rigorous process uh, in terms of the data they need to see. But we think of it one, as one that's relatively low risk, as long as you can produce all of that material.
2: We're kind of going through the full arc of getting this through an uh, engineer, through the FDA, and basically at that point, it's can be in, in customers' hands. But like, um, why bother doing all this? What do you get? I mean, it's obviously super cool. And uh, I, and actually, there's sci-fi stuff beyond this. I, I'll not have
1: to talk about it in a second. But like, why bother doing this? What's wrong with a cow? Yeah, oh, look, cow's Cal, great. And if we could only, if, if everyone was happy only eating meat that was kind of pasture-raised on, on like areas that couldn't be wasn't a forest and couldn't grow other meat, then it wouldn't be that terrible for the environment either. And, you know, it's kind of an okay situation. Uh, unfortunately, the reality is that, you know, a, a vast majority of, of beef produced in the US is factory farmed, mm-hmm. you know, and intense factory farming, which, you know, I think lots of people have issues with for different reasons, uh, not just about the pollution and uh, methane emissions, but also animal welfare. And if you, you know, look internationally, you know, said 80% of rainforest deforestation is related to the cattle industry, is so that cutting down rainforest to make space for pasture land or to grow feed crops for animals. And ultimately, beef is super inefficient as a, as a way of making meat. You know, there's different studies looking at it slightly different ways, but some of the studies suggest it's kind of 3% efficiency in terms of, you know, edible calories in that you have to feed a cow so edible calories out of meat that you get. And that's because you know the cow's alive for like eighteen to twenty-four months. It's walking around, respiring, and growing bones and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And beef happens to be the the least efficient of all of all meats. And during that time, they're giving off a huge amount of methane emissions. Methane's like thirty times more potent than CO two as a greenhouse gas. And uh, cattle are responsible for about thirty percent of the world's methane emissions. But if everybody
2: ate the way Americans would, that thirty percent number probably would go way up even. Yeah, no, it would go up pretty dramatically. Well, well, here's a crazy idea, which actually I never brought up to you, is that could you make something that to, let's say, a given cultural palate, let's say our our
1: palate, tastes better than beef? Is beef like, but like better? Yeah, certainly eventually, right? I I think that's one of the the futuristic promises, but isn't, isn't that far away is, well, especially if we're engineering the fatty acid profile and we're engineering different elements, then we can say, okay, what are the things that that make it taste the best thing possible, and what are the things that are advantageous for health, or are that there, there are some proteins which are known to be worse for health, and can we just remove those proteins? And so, certainly in the future, I think the the goal is to design even better meats.
2: Yeah, because presumably there is not much selective pressure on cows to be tasted by humans. No, <laughs> uh, yeah. you would think it might be the other way around. It, it's yeah. intriguing to think that there may be room above. That yeah. even just the beef is not even a bar. There may be something above here, which I would be even more interesting. Given this art that we talked about, where do you think uh, we are in 10 years? You know, I love talking about the future.
1: What does our diet look like 10 years from now? Yeah. The thing that I'm excited about is this kind of blended approach to really kind of change culture around meat alternatives. My goal is to basically expand it to where even the most hardcore kind of carnivore is excited to eat. These blended products because they taste great. Yeah. And that uh, they've really become the kind of the norm for people. And I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, alongside the advancements that we and you know, others that are making in meat in, in alternatives, you also have, you know, climate change continuing to cause problems with conventional meat supply. Right. Actually, just just this week, Fox News is talking about that there's going to be a meat drought uh coming up this Christmas because the actual drought of the the last few years uh, in America are decreasing. Uh, cattle herd sizes, and there's going to be like less beef available and beef prices are going to be kind of going up and there's never real end in sight to those kind of trends. And so I think we're going to be seeing this kind of constant shift where conventional meat is getting more and more expensive while meat alternatives and cultivated meat and blended products are getting cheaper and cheaper and more and more available every year.
2: Yeah. Now that makes sense. I mean, for me, there's something that is just So tantalizing about the combination of like the visceral enjoyment of like a great burger combined with something that actually might have some benefits on the plant side, health benefits combined with something that has issues that take care of sustainability, environment, and even water issues that we have. Yeah. It feels like a win win win. Uh, And usually enough, we don't get to have that. Yeah. No, 100%. Looking forward to, to having that as soon as possible.
1: Yeah.
0: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.